Good evening, and welcome to Socrates in the City, the thinking person's alternative to vandalizing the gates. (laughs) Or is it the gates? Or the gates? I don't know. I'm Eric Metaxas, your host for Socrates in the City, and I admit that I have thought about it. I, uh, I admit to having weighed the pros and cons pretty carefully, but in the end it was two simple things that persuaded me to put my pliers and my sharpies back in my pocket and come here tonight instead. You see, first I realized that I had to introduce tonight's speaker, Dr. Vitz. Of course, I couldn't just blow that off, or, or, or could I? Um, and secondly, I, I, uh, I realized I very well might get caught vandalizing the gates. <clears throat> Let me back up. Um, welcome, John. Um, my wife and daughter uh, went to see this installation the day that it um, opened uh, or was, as it were, installed. Uh, I confess that I had been there maybe 30 seconds and had walked I'd only walked through my third or maybe my fourth gate when I stopped and said, um, honey, uh, perhaps it's a little premature for me to say this, but uh, okay, enough with the orange already. I think I get it now, uh, but I'd like to move on next. I, you know, I can be that way. Um, as is my nature, I bought into the whole thing for about 30 seconds before I turned critical and cynical. Uh, but I, I confess that I was not the only one to see the worm in the apple, uh, or in this case, the orange. <laughs> one woman in front of me, I'm getting to that. One woman in front of me uh, mockingly said to her boyfriend that uh, the gates were really ugly, but she said it in a really sarcastic, funny voice, which I can't do for you right now, but trust me. Um, Another said that they made the whole park uh, look like it was under construction. Uh, And another woman said she thought perhaps Home Depot was having some kind of outdoor celebration. (laughs) I like the word celebration. What's going on? Who's the marketer for Home Depot? They've really nailed it. Um, Anyway, as I say, I I found the whole thing a bit pedestrian. (laughs) Not just literally, but figuratively. And, and sort of oddly annoying, as though I was having something foisted on me or imposed on me by a kind of pseudo-sophisticated Manhattanite groupthink. And I didn't like it. Um, I don't like groupthink, especially of the pseudo-sophisticated Manhattanite variety. You know what that sounds like. Uh, you've heard it before. Uh, what a pity Times Square is crime-free, they say. It's lost all of its charm. Waiter, another basket of those marvelous crackers when you have a moment. We've, we've all heard that, or have we? Um, but the one thing about the gates that really pushed me over the edge was that somehow everyone drank the magic Kool-Aid about how the obviously orange gates were really saffron. <laughs> this really got to me. You see, I found the idea that they were being sold to the public as saffron and not merely orange, both pretentious and annoying. 
You see, both pretentious and annoying. Um, because everyone knows they were orange, but no one would say it. To say it was to risk looking somehow out of the know, as it were. The Times had referred to them as saffron. Who am I to differ? Ah, look at the beautiful saffron gates, people would say. People who had never used the word saffron as an adjective in their entire lives. Just as in Hans Christian Andersen's story, The Emperor's New Clothes, it was only the innocent children who said what everyone else was afraid to say. Orange, they said. Orange, orange, orange. The gates are orange, mommy, aren't they? Mommy? Why does mommy have that look of fear in her eyes? Why won't mommy say orange? Is mommy afraid of Christo? And of his orange-haired wife? Why is mommy saying the gates look beautiful to all her friends when privately mommy said she thought they were hideous and overrated? Why are you offering me saffron juice with my cereal, mommy? Why? We're going to let that sink in, Dr. Vitz. Um, anyway, look, we all know that the thinking behind the Machiavellian Christos PR people was that saffron is a much more spiritual color than orange. Orange is working class and mundane. Saffron is so chic, it's almost Buddhist. And yet to all who will listen, I say, down with saffron, up with orange. Orange, you glad my tie is not saffron? Anyway, um, the reason we're here tonight is not to rage against faux art or against people willing to shell out 20 million of their own money for self-promotion. For you see, that would be unseemly. No, the reason we're here tonight is to hear Dr. Paul Vitz speak on the subject, has psychology discovered virtue? As I hardly need tell you, Throughout the 20th century, the world of psychology profoundly affected how people saw themselves. The paradigm of the soul, which had held its own for something like 3,000 years, seemed to fly out the window, leaving its place as superego, ego, and id. But the sum of these three Freudian parts never quite seemed to equal the weight or gravitas of the aforementioned soul, at least not in the popular consciousness. And so there's been a kind of question mark uh, hovering over the whole psychological enterprise, and I believe Dr. Vitz uh, will tonight clarify some of those questions that we have about the world of psychology, about where it's come from, where it's been, where it is, and where it may be going, and what time exactly it's supposed to get there. Uh, before I tell you about Dr. Vitz, uh, let me say a word about our format tonight. As usual, our speaker will talk for about 40 minutes, after which we'll have 30 or 40 minutes uh, for questions and answers. A word to the wise. All questions must be in the form of a question <laughs> and must be short Violators will be prosecuted. Uh, at about 8.30, we will stop, and of course, there'll be an opportunity to have Dr. Vitz sign copies of his books, or in this case, actually, not just books, but uh, tonight's talk uh, in some essay form has been published in the current issue of First Things Magazine, the yellow magazine uh, in piles over there. I recommend the magazine to you. The editor-in-chief and founder of it, uh, Father Richard John Newhouse, was our speaker in September on the uh, subject, Can an Atheist Be a Good Citizen?, uh, so anyway, uh, that's available for you as well. But as I say, at 8, at 8.30, we'll stop. There'll be more wine, more hors d'oeuvres, more piano music and conversation. Um, okay, Dr. Vitz. Dr. Vitz spoke here at Socrates in the City in this very room about a year ago on the topic, The Importance of Fatherhood.
We've had numerous fabulous evenings here at Socrates in the City, but there's no doubt in my mind that that one was one of the most fabulous, uh, one of the best. So we look forward to what Dr. Vitz has to say on the current subject. Um, Dr. Vitz is a Manhattanite, and he comes to us from NYU, where he's a professor of psychology in the Department of Psychology. Okay. Um, he's interested in how... If you're in, the, if, <laughs> if you're in the Department of Psychology, what else might you be a professor of? I guess that's my question. I'm sure there are answers to it, but I'm not going to... Okay. Dr. Vitz is interested in how things religious relate to psychology, and he's also interested in the general topic of psychology and art. Psychology and art, eh? <clears throat> Perhaps your topic tonight should be, what was Christo thinking? Subtitle, or was he? All right, that's enough. Uh, Dr. Vitz has published over 100 articles and essays and is the author of some fabulous books, most of which are available at our book table. Among them are Psychology as Religion, The Cult of Self-Worship, Modern Art and Modern Science, The Parallel Analysis of Vision, as well as Sigmund Freud's Christian Unconscious. That's, uh, that's interesting. I'd like to know what denomination you, you think his superego was. And, and whether he had an Episcopalian id. But we're going to talk, we'll talk about that later. Um, Dr. Vitz's most recent book, uh, which was uh, his topic last time here, is Faith of the Fatherless, the Psychology of Atheism. Um, Dr. Vitz lives in Greenwich Village with all the other beatniks and hipsters. I'm sorry, that's a typo. I meant to say he lives in Greenwich Village with his wife, Evelyn Timmy Berg Vitz, who is a professor of French at NYU, and their six children. Ladies and gentlemen, Dr. Paul Vitz. My God, how can you follow that? Well, I mean, you, know, you know, I have no jokes. I don't think I have any at all. Um, we don't live with all six children any longer. <laughs> uh, only two are still in the nest. The other four have... Uh, gone their ways. We, of course, keep in close touch, but it was a little crowded for a while. It's a real pleasure to be here and to speak to such an interesting and reasonable Manhattan audience, also a sophisticated one, even if you don't categorize yourself that way. I think you all are. You can't live here very long without, for better or worse, turning into uh, someone who's at least relatively sophisticated and um, our opinions about the gates are, are probably one sign of that but I'm not going down the, the path uh, with the orange cloths or with anything to do with art tonight I'm going to speak about psychology and I think we all know the importance of it it's hard perhaps for us to um, Keep in mind that a hundred years ago, in 1905, psychology wasn't on the cultural screen. Freud had begun some of his work in Vienna in the 1890s, but it was really not present in our society in the way that it is now. And as long ago as in the late 60s, Philip Reif had already described the American culture as 
expressing the triumph of the therapeutic. That psychology had come in as a way of understanding the human condition, and with it, unless, you know, that it happened in about two generations, and with it, the notion not just of the soul, but the notion of the moral life, the notion of personal responsibility, the notion of virtue had completely disappeared. One of the things um, that's interesting to me is that when I was in graduate school, the word virtue was almost embarrassing to utter. But it's now becoming a very hot topic, even in secular psychology, and I hope to get you to that by the end of my talk. So let us begin. Modern psychology, like Caesar's Gaul, is divided into three basic areas. The first is experimental psychology. That's oh, We'll talk more about it later, a little bit. The second is what might be called tests and measurements. And the third is psychotherapy and the study of the person, which is what most people mean by psychology. That's the common understanding. But these three are in all psychology departments. So go back to the thrilling days of yesteryear when you were in Psychology One and had some knowledge of the psych department. Those were the three elements that constituted the department of psychology. One was scientific psychology, one was social psychology in the sense of personality and social, and the other was tests and measurements. Remember, you all had to take a course in statistics to do your major in psychology. That's tests and measurements. And you had to take probably a course in learning theory or something like that, or cognitive psych. And all you really wanted to take were the courses on personality theory and maybe on pathology and I mean, psychopathology and so on. Now, this triumvirate is now beginning to break apart. And the first thing to say is that the experimental psychologists, which began in the 19th century, primarily in Germany, and they were founded by scientists, by physicists and biological scientists who created things like the study of sensation and perception, the study of animal learning, the study of memory, uh, nonsense syllables and later more interesting material. Uh, that's how experimental psychology began. And as time went on, it developed into two major uh, areas. One would be called the scientific study of cognition, which would include perception and memory and learning and things like that. And the other was the study uh, of the brain and behavior. And these were parts of the psychology department. But they're beginning to leave the psychology department, and they're no longer thought of as psychology. What's happened is the physiological or behavioral psychology that concentrated on the nervous system has morphed. It has turned into neuroscience. And in many departments, the professors who used to teach physiological psychology have left the department. One of those is NYU. And formed their own departments. The other part of scientific psychology, cognitive psychology, which studied memory and learning and language and all of that, it's now morphed also into something called the study of intelligence or artificial intelligence. Um, and it's, or sometimes it's related to robotics. 
And so it's now called cognitive science. And sometimes cognitive science is over in the math department or in engineering or something like that. So what's happened to the scientific part is it's returned to its origins, it's returned to science, and it's left psychology. And the two major topics, neuroscience and cognitive science, as you'll notice, don't refer to psychology in their titles at all. So they've left. They're still hanging around in some of the more traditional departments, but it's a matter of time. Meanwhile, we can look at tests and measurements. That's the, the second part of this psychological goal. Tests and measurements continues to contribute. It's not a very popular or romantic part of psychology. After all, statistics was never really something that excited most people, even those who were good at it. But... Tests and measurements, which began with the measuring of intelligence and then work and job aptitudes and things of that kind, and now does, you know, really yeoman's job measuring things like personality, particular pathologies such as with the MMPI and, uh, oh, let's say the DSM. You know, you have to categorize everybody who has a mental problem, and the DSM is one of the ways in which it's done. So tests and measurements is still alive and thriving, Uh, It also measures things like well-being, and it looks at things like how the family structure might be related to whether you are likely to be a drug addict or a delinquent or something like that. So it's a very useful kind of social science. But even it is beginning, I think, to to sort of, maybe what's going to happen to it, it's not clear. It might become part of a general social science measurement department. Some of it might go back and be part of statistics or something of that kind. But in any case, it's not going to help enrollments in psychology very much, even if it stays around, because it's not that popular, however useful and interesting it is. And that brings us now to the uh, third and largest area of what I call psychological gall. Um, It's spelled with a U. Um, And that's psychotherapy, personality, the whole understanding of psychology, as I said, that is the common term that we confront today when we mean we're part of the therapeutic society. Now, it's important to keep in mind that this was really the psychology that was invented, if you will, by by Sigmund Freud for all of his errors, conceptual errors and things of that kind, which have been well critiqued. He invented the psychotherapeutic session that so many people are familiar with, either in their own lives or in the lives of people they know and are important to them. And at the beginning, this psychology, Freudian psychology, or a little bit later, Adlerian psychology, or a little bit about the same time, maybe a little later, a Jungian psychology, These psychologists, particularly Freud, claimed that psychotherapy and its theories were part of a young natural science. They claimed it was not too predictive yet and not that rigorous, but it was because it was an infant natural science. And that was the claim. We're now, a hundred years later, on the Freudian claim. 
And there's no evidence that it has moved toward becoming a science in the hard sense or the natural sense at all. And in fact, what's going on with psychotherapy and the study of personality is that it too is returning to its origins. And just like the origin of the of experimental psychology was in physics and in biology and its return to that. In fact, I think Freudian psychology or psychotherapy and Jungian psychology and the psychotherapies that have come out of those and all the others that we have really are not part of science. They're part of the humanities. And the attempt to put them into the natural science category was a category mistake, an intellectual mistake made because of the prestige of science in the late 19th century. And so what's happening is psychotherapy is returning to its origins. And that means it's returning to the humanities. And it's basically returning, I will argue this evening, to um, maybe a subdiscipline of philosophy or theology. Even from the beginning, uh, you know, Freud, one of his major theoretical concepts was the Oedipus complex. Well, that's, that's the humanities. He's using a Greek tragedy as a model of the human mind. A great deal of the Jungian archetypes from the very beginning were based upon mythological and narrative notions. And so, as time has gone on, the practice of psychotherapy, although it has certain, if you will, basic, rather simple uh, scientific observational components to it, has never become scientific in terms of its theory or general framework or understanding. And recently what's happening is major theorists are saying, We don't even want to be scientific. This is not a possibility for us. Major theorists, and and, and here I'm thinking of of, of, uh, Schaefer and Spence and uh, Jerry Bruner and uh, McAdams, they've all began to see this, this problem. And by the way, this isn't just happening, you know, in the last five years. This has been happening since the 80s. These theorists have all approached the understanding of the person from a narrative point of view. That is, they're looking at psychotherapy and the sessions in there, frankly, they're looking at them as storytelling situations that have to be understood from a narrative point of view. If you're going to understand a person's personality, it's closer to a narrative biography in history, let's say, than to science. Now, that's a radical change. They have not only not become more naturally scientific in the sense of the hard sciences or natural science, it's not only that that has failed, but they have begun to consciously choose the humanistic model, the humanities. So they're returning to kind as well. Because maybe we never knew it or we'd forgotten it, but 
120 or 30 years ago, psychology was part of the humanities. It's right there on the, you know, on the library shelves between philosophy and theology. And the whole meaning of the person in that sense comes out of philosophy. We all know that in some respects, at least in the Western culture and in the modern period. It goes back further, of course, but uh, the meaning of the moral life was an intrinsic part of uh, philosophy and an intrinsic part of psychology. Early psychologists, before the advent of behaviorism and Freudianism, talked about the moral life all the time as part of psychology. And, of course, that's disappeared. We now talk about our motives. We don't talk about our morals. We want to explain things, so we've, we've left that vocabulary. But now let me... Uh, well, another example of the failure of psychology to become a science is to look at the fact that it always intended to use uh, scientific theories as sort of general metaphors. But they were never valid for them. You know, Freud had a model of the mind which was based upon energy. You know, you had so much psychic energy and it got tied up in a repression and so you didn't have it for the rest of your living and we had only so much energy of a psychic kind. I mean, he was ripping this off from Helmholtz and the law of the conservation of energy and all of the emphasis on energy in the second half of the 19th century in the physical sciences. Along a little bit later, we had hydraulic and equilibrium models that were taken from biological sciences. And then about 1960, up pops the computer model of the mind, again coming from outside of psychology. And today, the last one of these might be evolutionary psychology, which has again come from outside the field. So the major, uh, the, the, this gave a patina of science, of natural science to psych, psychotherapy, but it, it was a, you know, they were just hauling in a theory that was really operating as a metaphor. And it didn't work very well. And today, no one holds to Freud's energy model. Even the, the best of the old Freudians clearly reject that. Uh, the computer model of the mind is be taking a lot of lumps in the last 20 years, and so, you know, our mind isn't like a computer. Uh, you know, it's, uh, it's made out of different stuff. You know, you know, computers don't like water, and we do, and, you know, and uh, things like that. You know, it's, it's, we won't, you know, it's, we're, we're organic and it's silicon and we don't need to go into all the differences, but it's, it's fading as a model too and it was used as a metaphor to sort of justify certain kinds of psychologists. And so, I'm arguing that psychology then, in the sense of psychotherapy, although it has a basic observational uh, beginning, a kind of descriptive science like a physician might get when he's, you know, trying to look at you and do a tapping your knee and, uh, you know, getting a few tests and so on to, to describe what might be your physical problem or to check for certain ones. There is a certain descriptive uh, scientific aspect to psychology, which allows you to identify certain diagnoses and so forth. But once you start operating about how you intervene in the life of the person, what kinds of 
goals or purposes are relevant, how you treat in your therapeutic sessions, the sexuality and and the behavior of your patient or client, all of this, once you start doing that, we're now recognizing that psychology has become an applied philosophy of life. And that's a very important way to think about it. It's an applied theoretical position that is closer to a philosophy than to anything else. Now, in fact, it's gotten to be so close to an applied philosophy of life that there are a small group of philosophers who are now strongly urging that philosophers be licensed to be therapists because they claim philosophers are the ones who know the correct and best ways to think. And most people's problems are they don't think right. And this is not so funny as it sounds because uh, many of you know about behavioral and cognitive therapy. And those therapies say that the basic problem with people when they come in is they don't know how to think correctly about the problem. They make intellectual mistakes. They catastrophize, for example, and they overgeneralize and they do all sorts of things about their own behavior that is uh, just simply untrue. Their own thought processes need to be changed. And that's what cognitive and behavioral therapy works on, changing how you think and how you behave. And so the philosophers are now arguing they should be, you know, licensed as, you know, as therapists. But the basic point, though, is that it's now clear that psychotherapy, counseling, all of this is an applied philosophy of life, and the, um, the scientific uh, claim of the hard sciences as really foundational for it is fading, and in, you know, in a certain sense, it's simply so last century. And we're in a new century. So the question is, where might we be going? And so here I want to talk about where I think psychology is headed. And the first person I want to uh, introduce you to is a psychologist named Martin Seligman. Uh, He's a professor at uh, uh, University of Pennsylvania, uh, a secular psychologist and a very fine one, a former president of the American Psychological Association. And he's pushing and developing and energizing a movement, a new movement in psychology called positive psychology. Now, uh, let me explain first what he means by negative psychology, and then we'll talk about positive psychology. Uh, Negative psychology is the first hundred years of psychology and psychotherapy that focused on your problems, You know, it focused on the traumas, the inadequacies, the abandonments, whatever the problems were in your past life, in your early life, whatever your problems are now, you know, your interpersonal um, uh, dysfunctionalisms of various kinds. Essentially, you came in with a problem, a psychological ache or pain, the presenting problem, and that's what he means by negative psychology. Now, when he says that, he's not saying negative psychology is wrong, and he's not saying, he's not criticizing it uh, in, in foundationally. He's just saying it was limited 
it missed a lot of the person. Because Seligman himself made important contributions to negative psychology. He himself is famous for developing something called a model of learned helplessness and how that leads to depression. Well, that is a classic example of negative psychology. But he's talking about positive psychology, which is different from that. And what he means about positive psychology is this. He means those characteristics of the person that are positive that you can develop that will make your life better. Now, when he lists some of them, uh, he, he talks about things like uh, resilience and optimism and He'll talk about even occasionally gratitude and so on. This is how he first began talking about it. And his idea is that, you know, one of the best ways to deal with your problems is to develop strengths. And he called them character strengths. And these will not only help you overcome your past problems, they'll protect you from future problems. It's sort of like, you know, eating well and exercising and all of that will protect your body from future problems to some degree, right? Now, he's recently published a book which has sort of even upped the ante of his position. Uh, it's a book by uh, a co-author. Well, the first off author is actually named Christopher Peterson, and his name, he's the second author. But the title is called Character Strengths and Virtues, Handbook and Classification. And it's a major event that was published in 2004. And in this, he explicitly addresses the reintroduction of the virtues as part of psychology. And I'm going to quote a couple of sections just so you can get a feel for what, I mean, he really means the virtues. They've got to be brought back into psychology, he's saying, and this is how he's conceptualizing now positive psychology. So here we are. Here's the quote, a couple of them I think you might like. First, Psychology should, re quote, reclaim the study of character and virtue as legitimate topics of psychological inquiry and informed societal discourse. That's the other thing. Society has been, the discourse in our society has been psychological. So if this is part of the new psychology, we're going to have virtue and character strength, we would hope, as part of our new discourse. By providing ways of talking about character strengths and measuring them across the lifespan, this classification of character and virtue will start to make possible a science of human strengths that goes beyond armchair philosophy and political rhetoric. We believe that good character can be cultivated, but to do so we need conceptual and empirical tools to craft and evaluate interventions. Now, they distinguish three levels. One is the virtue at the highest level, then character strengths, uh, and then what they call situational themes. Now, to continue, the virtues are, quote, the core characteristics valued by moral philosophers and religious thinkers. Wisd here, here, here there are six. Wisdom, courage, humanity, justice, temperance, and transcendence. These six broad categories of virtue emerge consistently from historical surveys. They do a whole lot of that historical surveying in that book. 
We argue that these are universal, perhaps grounded in biology, through an evolutionary process that's selected for them. And we speculate that all of these virtues must be present at above threshold values for an individual to be deemed of good character. It's the language of 100 year, 150 years ago, now being rediscovered, the wheel. Anyway. <laughs> so they've rediscovered the wheel, but they'll be with their tests and measurements they're going to discover new things about it. They're going to discover how it works with different ages and how you practice it. They're going to discover effective ways, presumably, for teaching the virtues. Now, you might notice of the six core virtues which they name, they are, they're very familiar to the classic Christian and Greco-Roman names, very similar to them, that is. Uh, their explanation of wisdom and knowledge is very close to the traditional virtue of prudence, Humanity is close to charity. Courage, justice, and temperance have not changed their names at all from the classic uh, nomenclature. And their sixth virtue, called transcendence, is not far from hope and faith. The authors survey the major religious and philosophical traditions in both the East and the West in defending the universality of their definition of the six high virtues. In the process, they explicitly acknowledge, among others, of course, Aristotle and Aquinas. Now, in, discuss in discovering positive human characteristics that need to be cultivated in order to strengthen a person and to help heal past suffering, psychology unknowingly has made a momentous conceptual change. The previous model of all modern psychology was based entirely on the traditional scientific worldview of a deterministic past causing the present in moving to positive psychology, the discipline has moved not only from science to philosophy, but also from the past and its effects on our future, you know, on causing the present, that is. They've moved from the past, causing the present. They've moved to the future in our purposes. They have moved from determinism to teleology. This is an enormous change. It's moving from looking back at your past as causing who you are to looking at the future as letting you, as determining what you are to become. And that's 180 degrees. Now, this new approach of positive psychology is not just, I think, going to be short-lived. It's got too many things going for it. It's already, it's not going to be a fad. First of all, there are already a, lot, a whole network of young psychologists getting in on it because they know that there's a huge area here, a new area to explore. You know, maybe I'll be Mr., you know, I'm going to study courage. I'm going to be Mr. Courage or I'm going to be, you know, or, you know, I'm going to be Mr. Intimacy or whatever, you know, whatever it is or, uh, <laughs> you know, or just I'm going to be the expert on Gratitude. I'm so thankful this hasn't been studied before. 
jackpot. So there are a lot of them going in it. It's a major new area to be investigated. It's a classic set of, uh, of, of problems that there's a huge literature on, and psychology has ignored it. They're going to move in here. And if they find anything about, the, about how to cultivate these virtues that's useful for children or for older people or whatever, it's going to immediately impact education, uh, psychotherapy, and other parts of the culture. Imagine, I mean, imagine what would happen if we had large programs that were specialized in teaching, say, courage or resilience or hopefulness. And how do you teach hopefulness, you know, to somebody who's 75 versus somebody who's seven? You know, there are a lot of different problems. And how do you investigate it? How do you introduce it? And so on. So there's a lot to go here. And it's going to have a big impact if it takes place. Now, as far as the future of psychology goes, I think we've already seen a big change in psychology. And here I want to talk about some of the good news about what's been happening in the last 30 years. Now, some of you may know that in my first publications about psychology back in the 70s and 80s, I was a, a pretty harsh critic of a lot of psychology particularly popular psychology and psychotherapy. I still stand by those critiques, but much to my surprise, I think psychology has changed in a way, and much to my surprise, toward the better. And so let me mention now some of the things that have happened to the field of psychology in the last 30 years that I think have bettered it. Um, First, its attitude toward religion has significantly changed. It used to be seen that by psychologists that religion was a, a negative thing. It was, you know, childish or pathological or illusionary or what have you. But you know that's changing. In fact, it's changed a lot. There's been a, a good deal of experimental evidence that people who are seriously religious live longer, are healthier mentally and physically, and happier. Well, that gets rid of the, you know, religion is, an, is a neurosis kind of argument, uh, which was Freud's first proposal. It was different kinds of neuroses and so forth, but it was always a neurosis or at least an illusion. Well, maybe it's still an illusion from these people's point of view, but at least it's a helpful one. <laughs> Not that that's the reason for it, but you know that. The other thing is we've seen in the last 30 years a huge growth of interest in, new, in spirituality, particularly in the New Age movement. And this has greatly impacted the mentality of the governing elites in our society. And so it's no longer natural to be condescending toward uh, at least spirituality or the religious impulse because too many of the people in the governing class are involved in a serious interest in it. Now, of course, it's still, in psychology, uh, quite okay to be hostile to organized religion uh, and so forth. Uh, I'm not sure there actually is any other kind, but anyway, you know what we mean by that. So, but, disorganized religion? <laughs> anyway, um, 
But that's a big improvement. Now, the other thing is psychology itself has begun to discover one of the virtues. It's beginning, believe it or not, it's gone through a real process here of discovering the virtue of humility. And it's discovered this in a number of painful ways, which is the only way you do discover that virtue. Uh, First, it's learned that the magical transformations of life that psychology was supposed to bring to people on a massive scale and a very reliable uh, scale back in the 60s and 70s hasn't happened. It didn't work. It didn't transform people into these happy, cheerful, functioning, sweet, self-actualized creatures. And in fact, many of the psychologists who first pushed those ideas themselves went off into New Age spirituality. Abraham Maslow was one of them. But spirituality began, and religious meaning of a higher kind replaced the kind of enthusiasm for psychology that used to exist in our our society. So many of you in this audience are too young to know that earlier stage of psychology's claim to be, you know, the meaning of how you can have a successful life. Uh, Second, psychology in the last 30 years has been severely challenged by the biological sciences so that many presumably psychological problems are now dealt with with medication. Obsessive compulsive disorder, which was always resistant to psychotherapy, now normally is dealt with primarily with medication. So are many other things, depressions of certain kinds and many others. Now, there are bad side effects from medication, and I don't want to say it's a, if you'll pardon the expression, a panacea, but it has helped many people a lot, these the medication, and it's pushed psychology back from areas that it once claimed to be understanding and, and uh, taking care of people in those areas. So on the... Uh, on one side, the biologists have crept in to take over a fair amount of their territory. On the other side, religion and spirituality has come in to take over some of their meaning. Then the healthcare practice industry, the HMOs, have had a big effect on psychology by making it such that you, you can only have about, they'll only pay the insurance on maybe 12 or maximum, say, 16 sessions. You can't go into psychoanalysis and expect an insurance company to pay for it, you know, year after year after year. Imagine going, you know, the original psychoanalytic sessions that Freud gave were you met with Freud five days a week. Every day of the week you met. That was true. And it went on for years. Eventually, the psychiatrists and psychoanalysts got together and decided they wanted more vacation, so Friday was usually dropped out. <laughs> and it was also helping the, uh, the patient, too. But it would go on for years. <laughs> but you can't do that anymore and expect insurance to cover it. So that's pushed it back. So short, and the short-term therapies tend to be either a kind of mixture of cognitive behavioral and medication. And these are very much, oh, if you will, pragmatic. These are not giving you a world view to you know, understand the meaning of your life. Now, another thing that happened in psychology occurred because of its success. 
There have been many, many psychotherapists produced in the last 30 or 40 years. And one of the things that happened is they needed, of course, patients or clients. And the problem was they had to expand by going into the whole rest of the population. Originally, psychoanalysis was more or less the secular cultural elite. But they've had to deal with the masses of people in this country and abroad. And many of these people are religious. And so just to be able to maintain, you know, they have to have respect for their patients if they're going to be of any use to them. They've had to deal with religious people in a way that has made it not a foreign thing. Freud never dealt with people who were seriously religious. He never published one case history of a believing patient in his psychoanalysis. But most therapists today run into this routinely in their patients, people who are believers. And so they have to they recognize this is something that isn't sort of foreign and weird and everything else. It's part of the natural, meaningful life of people. And they often are learning now to have to deal with it and address it. And it's a growing area in psychotherapy. And then, of course, paradoxically, modern theory, or really postmodern theory, has undermined the confidence of psychology, particularly the scientific beliefs. Postmodern theory for what, you know, I don't want to argue its validity and when it does seem to have something to say and when it doesn't, but the main thing about postmodernism is it has destroyed the uh, assumption of the secular modern ideal of a rational, reliable, objective way to understand uh, texts and people. Now, it can't, you know, mathematics remains unchallenged and most of the hard sciences really do. But when you get to un un interpreting people, the idea, even the ideal of this objective point of view is, has been seriously undermined by the secular theorists of postmodernism itself. For example, in psychology, a number of postmodern theorists have said that there's no such thing as the self. Maybe you didn't know that, that they're busy deconstructing the self. They don't think there is such a thing, or at least there's no authentic self, there's no integrated self. People are writing about, you know, the empty self, the saturated self, the non-existent self. Well, there goes self-actualization. <laughs> now... The result of all of this is that psychology is more realistic, not just more humble, but more realistic. And I see on the horizon, I believe, the horizon is always, you know, hopefully tomorrow's weather, but you never know, do you? But I see something that I call a transmodern psychology, maybe even a transmodern world. And what I mean by transmodern is a new mentality. Not that rejects modernity, but that transforms it and transcends it. And it will transform it by applying the methodology of, of tests and measurement to, let's say, the understanding of the virtues. But by bringing in the virtues, it is transcending our present understanding. It's bringing in ideals. It's bringing in high ideas to shoot for for yourself. It's bringing in transcendence. Now, it isn't religious transcendence, but it's bringing in something that's putting you into that trajectory. 
And this is already beginning to happen in the field. Here are two things that have happened in the last few years. A new institute has been formed called the International Forgiveness Institute. And they study forgiveness at the level of interpersonal psychotherapy, and they're now 20 years of development of how to introduce forgiveness into psychotherapy. And they're just beginning to explore how you deal with forgiveness between groups. The head of it, a, a professor at the University of Wisconsin, has spent a fair amount of time in Northern Ireland trying to deal with that problem of group forgiveness. And they're getting money and getting funded and a lot of interest in it. And the psychotherapists who are studying it are getting themselves on television and, you know, on Oprah even and things like that. But look at it. You know, the problem of forgiveness is a very real one that a lot of people are interested in. And nobody's been studying it in psychology until the last 20 years. There's a new institute at Case Western Reserve that studies love. Sort of the love institute. And they're trying to figure out how do you, you know, what is love? What are the different types? What, in fact, supports it? Well, you know, it's about time, wouldn't you say? We had things about, you know. So, um, and even, you know, the, late, the, the first book on psychotherapy and forgiveness, not only were the authors Christians, but it was published by the American Psychological Association. They went after it aggressively to get it. They knew it was an important new development. There are other things that are happening out there. It's not just the positive psychology and the virtues. Look, imagine if you could bring virtues into psychotherapy, virtue training into psychotherapy, and you had forgiveness and virtue. I mean, it would transform the whole meaning of it to have that kind of an emphasis in psychotherapy. And I see this as a transmodern possibility, a new world where we have left modernism and postmodernism behind and gone to something that has recaptured the wisdom of the past, but using some of the methodologies of the present to make it more effectively uh, understood and applied. Now, if this happens, of course, uh, psychology will become, as I've already said, perhaps even more so, a smaller and humbler discipline. But I think it will become a much more useful one, a much more uh, effective one. And it will, in such a transmodern world, that is, psychology would be the handmaid of philosophy and theology, which, of course, from the beginning is what it was supposed to be. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Vitz. We're going to have uh, time for questions and answers. Uh, this is all incredibly hopeful. I'm not used to that. Sorry about it. It's a, yeah, yeah. It's, uh, no, I think we could use some hope in, uh, when it's cold in March, but that really is very, very exciting. But um, uh, as we know, uh, we have to keep our questions short and crisp, but uh, we've got time for that, and we should uh, be out of here before 8.30. I've got a few announcements I'll make on the back end, so stick around if you can. So, Dr. Ritz, come on up and uh, answer these questions that they'll be firing at you any moment. Does, that, does somebody have a question? Because I've got questions. Pat, you've got a question? Okay, you go first. Hi, not wanting to 
um, the feet, the hopefulness of the moment. But as you talk about virtue being used in psychology and psychotherapy, it just makes me think that it might be one more way to um, make things that God has taught us um, be in the service of men, of a culture that has men as, at its center and ob obviates the, the need for God. So this is a way that we can feel better. Um, but how can we have really real virtue without the presence of God in the discussion? Well, I, I, look, I... I um on Tuesdays and Thursdays and Saturdays, I'm an optimist. <laughs> On Mondays and Wednesdays and Fridays, your question occurs to me. <laughs> it's a serious issue, but let's keep in mind. First of all, it would still be a better society if these things were part of it, whether they came from a secular point of view or not. Second, it is true, the virtues are part probably of the natural order. They're Aristotle and the Greeks had them before Christianity, and so did uh, much. Uh, you know, when they when they survey the you know the the Confucian literature and the Hindu literature and so forth, they, they find the virtues emphasized there too. I believe C.S. Lewis referred to this sort of as the Tao, mentioning that there was a natural virtue uh, that had to be. Um, recognized around the world and that wise cultures had always encouraged. So I would say, first of all, it's far better than emphasizing getting in touch with your sexual feelings and letting it all hang out or something, which has been what we've been doing in psychology, so to speak. But it is, of course, true that in the final analysis, the question of what are the virtues for and whether at any point the theological virtues will come in is another issue. But at present, I see a lot of people who are Christians and psychologists working on this. And although it isn't going to control the whole country or the world or anything like that, that's you know, not, not the agenda, they are going to develop this within a faith-based uh, framework. And that will be all to, uh, you know, you can still then be a psychologist and a, a believer uh, and it won't, be, and you can speak to your secular colleagues about something you both care about, even though they may say, like the Stoics of old, you know that. The, sometimes I think Albert Ellis, with his cognitive behavioral stuff, is a kind of modern Stoic. But in any case, the the ancient Greek secular positions may be developed again too. But we'll have, I think, a I think it will be two steps forward and maybe one back. But that is the issue, finally, whether in fact it's man or God that's at the center. Doctor, this may connect with your uh, last talk uh, at Socrates in the City. Um, the question is about virtue and its relationship with virility, which is something that Machiavelli uh, talked about in his uh, discourses, and how the idea of what it is to be a man is related to the idea of what it is to be virtuous. 
All right. Well, that's a, it's a big question. It is true that the word virtue has its origin in uh, virility and in masculine strength. And somebody could write a book on the history of how the word virtue transformed itself from that heavily masculine emphasis to whether a woman has lost her virginity. That's, you know, a 2,000-year trajectory. But virtue is for both men and women. And it involves discipline. It will involve slightly different emphases, I'm sure, for men and women. Um, this is a separate topic as to how, you know, you, how the virtues might be somewhat different. There'll be a lot of overlap and then there'll be some difference. But we have no understanding of male virtue at all in our culture uh, beyond athletic ability or a few, you know, obvious physical competences. So the idea that we could challenge men to virtue involving things like self-control and prudence and things of that kind would be a major contribution. In some respects, women have maintained what I would call the virtues, um, either naturally or culturally or for whatever reason, better. So there would be a place to challenge men to virtue in this new positive psychology. Uh, the, you uh, address part of my the answer to part of my question with the first speaker who is uh, who who came uh, the, the lady who came first uh, when you mentioned the Tao. Um, I enjoyed your your uh, your speech. The part that I would like to talk about, though, is your reference to the Christian Greco uh, framework for the virtues, yeah. and I worry about that, frankly, because all of those virtues, I believe, are all. Abrahamic based and all, all what all although I believe all of those virtues are espoused by the three Abrahamic religions of the world and I worry and I'd like to hear your opinion about uh, people who are wanting to perhaps um, have their own Christian faith based agenda as opposed to the Tao based agenda Well, I, I, I agree that the Tao by itself, and which would, would probably occur if this development takes place, there'll be secular um, virtue-based programs. This will be the only way business, for example, could introduce it into their businesses and so on and so forth. And for some people, that would be the whole show. Uh, what we would hope is that natural virtue is preparatory uh, for, uh, for faith. In that, and this would be an interesting thing to see if it in fact uh, does work that way, where the people who are um, more virtue-based in the natural order are better prepared to accept um, God and our Lord. And that's a task to be investigated. There are many people who would claim that that's probably the case. If it's not, of course, then there's a big problem. 
But in general, I'm convinced that when the apostles were selected, they had a great deal of natural virtue. That the Jewish world of that time had inculcated routinely in, it, in a large number of its people. But that's the adventure. Dr. Witz, um, in the last 20 years, self-help has been kind of focus of pop, pop culture and religious communities. Um, what do you see that this changing focus towards virtue does for the self-help industry in uh, North America? I think it brings into the self-help world external standards that you are going to have to try to reach. Not just overcoming your past victim status, but moving on to something positive. Something that, you know, the whole victim's I didn't say too much about it, but one of the consequences of the negative psychology and psychotherapy, and self-help grows out of that, is you have a problem, and now you try to fix it yourself rather than going to a therapist, or you go to a, a group. You may go to a, an encounter, you know, some kind of recovery group or encounter group or adult children of alcoholics group and so on, where everybody, you know, talks about their past, and you do try to help yourself. It, Self in the group and individually. But I would argue that what this does is it changes the emphasis to building something positive. And so they're going to say, all right, so your father was an alcoholic and he really beat the hell out of you. What are you going to do about it? I don't want to hear about it anymore. You know, we're not going to have a pity party. We're going to have a a focus on what you positively do. And so I think that's different from the self-help um, uh, movement, but I may have overgeneralized on that answer. So, I mean, I'm, I'm not confident that I've completely uh, dealt with that problem. Dr. Vitz, the um, Freud and his counterparts by... Um, taking psychology and placing it close to the science um, did it justice for um, creating its, its longevity and it's allowing it to sustain to our time. As the pendulum somewhat swings back closer towards the humanities and religion, the identity of the psychologist or the therapist comes a little bit closer back towards that of a priest or a pastor. Um, how, what happens to the identity of that psychologist or that therapist? Well, I see them as counselors, and that's one of the, um, the talents that people are called to. St. Paul mentions counseling explicitly, and it's different from preaching, and it's different from, I would say, pastoring. Uh, a, a pastor can have a short-term counseling capacity, but if he does anything very long-term, he'll be eaten alive. Uh, and he'll never write a sermon, and he won't have any time left. Uh, <laughs> it'll be, you know, that's not the function. You know, there's a, there's a, a sacramental function, a leadership function, all of these other functions which the pastor has to have. So the counselor can be a very good help helpmate to the to things, and you'd love to have good ones. You know, here I, 
look, I understand your issue. You're, you're really, you know, you're suffering. You have this particular problem. I know somebody you should see. And it isn't me. Because I wasn't trained for this. And if I did do this, I wouldn't have any time left over. So that's, so I, I think the problem of the ambiguity is already present. And I don't think this will make it any worse. I am a pastor. Thank you for that. That's very helpful. Um, and I'm serious. I'm dead serious about that. Could you just talk from your experience about how the differences in people of faith dealing with some, some serious psychological type of issues, forgiveness, love, and so forth, as you mentioned. Could you talk a little bit about, from your experience, the differences you see from people of faith and those who, who are not? Well, I have one liability to begin with, and that is I see very few people who aren't people of faith. And that's because of how I've selected my clients. Uh, so that because I see faith as such an important, uh, really an asset, an enormously powerful asset for helping people. And without it, I don't know in some respects how, how, how you could deal with certain issues. Um, so I don't know how I think that that the whole secular psychological world in terms of its theoretical framework has kind of played itself out. I, I don't even, there are no important secular psychologists in the traditional old-fashioned sense of having a worldview and giving you this around anymore. Um, there are some with their new little models or their new approaches this way or that, but no, there are none of them having major impact on the society. We're at the level of boutiques in, in the discipline. That is, we have all this niche marketing, but that means the basic product has been more or less completed. And I think the next major move is going to be uh, to recognize the importance of faith in psychotherapy itself, and that even potentially this is going to be recognized by the secular world and in a way may transform them out of secularism. I mean, I don't want to get carried away here, but I think it's quite possible you can show very objectively that people who have the capacity to, um, to, to develop virtues, to forgive others, and to love are far more capable of overcoming their psychological problems. Now, no seriously religious person, certainly no Christian is going to find that amazing. That's sort of a no-brainer. But there are a lot of people out there in the secular world who don't have a brain. And, we, and well, they've, they've cut out that part. And, and when the evidence comes in, they'll change. They'll change. We could see in this transmodern world a lot of them saying, hey, you know, um, even Freud let little slips, you know. He, he writes his theories, and then every now and then he tosses something off with the left hand. And he did once he wrote. And, of course, nobody, the, the only real way to get over uh, your mental problems is to develop love. That if you can't love, you know, love gets you out of your problems, and if you can't, you're in them. Well, you know, and then he, then he forgets to follow it up, of course. 
So he doesn't look at love. Or, 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 and he, he said a lot of things that were like that. So I think when people discuss, I mean, look, we've we got an institute doing research on love, and you might say, oh, that's ridiculous. But, you know, we don't know very much about it. And we're not talking romance. You know, we're not, how does love develop in families and with the infant? And, you know, what are the biochemical and the neurological bases of, say, bonding? What are the, how, how do men and women develop bonding? How, you know, how do older people develop more, uh, you know, more general love? You know, what happens to people's understanding of love when they have grandchildren? I mean, you know, the, love's a constant, there are a lot of different kinds of it, and, and, and if they start finding this out and it becomes what people talk about instead of your repressed sex life, which is what we talked about for about 20 or 30 years because of Freud. And, you know, no other major psychologist said sex was even important. Did you know that? It, I mean, they might have said it was moderately important. But they didn't bring, it wasn't in their theory. Jung didn't have it, you know, the, the object relations theorists, the humanistics, it wasn't there. Only Freud. And, of course, the media took it and the popular culture, so that was what we, but imagine if we're talking about love and how you live a life as a young person so your capacity to love and to grow in love will expand as you get older. What a different way to think about life. And, you know, this could help that, maybe, this, this so-called psychology that might happen. Okay, sorry to go on so much. I just want to ask my friend Eric, and he can give me the answer later. That's first for him. But uh, I hope he can tell me if that tie came out of the recycle from the curtains from Central Park. <laughs> but anyway, my question, you covered a lot. I, I thank you for tonight. And growing up, especially coming from India of multiple religions, uh, I learned that, you know, good psychology provides you information of the personality and Christianity provides you the transformation of the personality. Tonight you talked a lot of virtues, temperance and all. It looks, it was straight out of Galatians where somebody says the personality of the Lord Jesus Christ. But in your work and hopefully in America, do you see any difficulty in, in like conveying the centrality of the Christian faith without being unintellectual or, you know, Relevant. Do I see any difficulty? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, that's our problem now. But what I'm trying... <laughs> we don't have a... We have this intellectual gap between the language of our culture, and in this case, the language of our mental experience, which is now the language of psychology, and the language of scripture and theology. And that's the big gap. What I'm suggesting is that if psychology, that psychology might be able to move, move to, to closer to the language of scripture and theology when and if it moves in this positive psychology direction. If it moves toward studying as part of positive psychology, not only the virtues, but forgiveness and love, it's not going to be, you know, so far removed. And so that's why I think at that point you could get a genuine reintroduction of Christian concepts as part of the living intellectual life of the West. I don't know. 
You know what I mean. That, that's, but that would be the hope, that we would move that way. You know, close that gap that isn't there, that, that's so big now. You know, where they call Christians Bible thumpers and, you know, what I mean. You know, you know, you know, they, you know mindless, uh, on, you know, whatever. I hope that that's the best I can do with that. I'm sorry. If I... Yeah. Um, my question goes back maybe to the first question. Uh, you mentioned that every theory in psychology is based on ideas you have about what the man is, what the good is, in other, ways, in other words, like in philosophy, right? And uh, when you're saying, like, I mean, if we are heading... Like, if psychology is going that way, like, as you were saying, closer to Christianity, uh, does it mean that uh, you, I mean, that we're trying to put together, like, the categories, spiritual categories of Christianity and psychology together? And I have a, my question will be, uh, isn't it a little bit pretentious? I'm Christian, but... (laughs) I found that difficult because how can we explain, uh, we, how can we cover, or I don't know if I'm being clear, <laughs> yeah, like how can you base a theory in psychology using like uh, your ideas of uh, Christianity? Well, aren't, aren't they quali- isn't there a fundamental qualitative difference? I think Is that what are. you're saying? Yes, yes, I would agree. I think there are. No, I would agree. I'm just saying that this, in the natural order, is moving us, that is, we're, we're finally being less reductionistic in our understanding of the human being, less materialistic, less uh, uh, pessimistic about the deterministic control of the past, and we're moving people to look toward the future in the natural order. That's, all, that's natural psychology. That's a form of truth that would be available to anyone. That is not Christianity, but I'm arguing that it is a preparation for it because it sets the person on a trajectory, first of all, of transcendence, of vertical transcendence. Mm-hmm. And, and So you will have to include that category like... Like and in the definition, so I, I look. The psychology would not, but the but psychologists, many of whom will be Christian, would. 